that if you're somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck, having the, any real additional amount of other money makes it so that you have, just have that leeway and flex in which people who are better off don't need to think as intently about the trade-offs involved with every, every single expenditure. This is the Wicked Problems Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ostreich. Today I'm sitting down with Jonathan Cohn. Jonathan is an old friend and a longtime writing partner. Jonathan is someone with very deep and broad interests. So he's, he's someone I deeply respect and appreciate. Jonathan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much. My name is Jonathan Cohn. I live in Boston. I'm an editor and kind of professionally, both in mix of freelance as well as edita- editing an online journal with the Great Transition Initiative at the TELUS Institute. And somebody who's active across progressive politics in Massachusetts as well as nationally that get kind of interesting insights into how much is messed up and needs to be fixed. <laughs> When I think about politics, the work you do, I, you're just an amazing kind of super volunteer. It's, it seems like you're always, always involved with interesting stuff on the ground. Yeah, no, thank you. No, in terms of like with the electoral fund, I had realized that this is close to the, the Massachusetts primary last year, as well as the general election last year. I realized that across multiple different campaigns and sometimes for the general in different states, I was spending upwards of 20 hours a week volunteering wow. <laughs> outside of an actual job, another <laughs> volunteer engagement. So. You probably get about a, as much sleep as I do, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let, let's jump on to the new Wicked Problems Collaborative book that you helped me edit. Any, any interesting insights or, or high-level thoughts on that you'd like to share? What I like about a number of the essays is how kind of a guiding frame for many of them is the question of how do we use the moment that we're in to reflect on what the world should look or could look like after, as well as what was wrong about the world before. Given that kind of the pandemic creates a period of disruption or disorientation, I know even both spatially and temporally, one thing on, on the temporal front that I've been commenting recently is that there's a particularly weird experience of time right now in which last year we were in a period where we knew that the near future it looked like the near past and we, it was just like we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And now we're in that moment where we know that the near future won't look like the near past, but we don't know what yet it will, how yet that will manifest. But in the way in which COVID highlighted so many underlying inequalities, kind of racial and economic inequalities, whether it highlighted kind of system weaknesses like the lack of a care infrastructure how during during a global pandemic that just really does come to the surface and how it highlights lack of a social safety net as strong as it should be whether it even on the flip side shows the potential to reclaim kind of communal spaces as kind of during a period where some of the hustle and bustle kind of goes away and you realize kind of that need for when things fully come back of that robust kind of vision of public space. Thought it was kind of fun of seeing how people toy with that and have that question about what's on the top of their mind in that regard. And in a moment where we know that we have to steer things in some direction that isn't where they are, how can we make sure that it goes in a direction that is actually better and more equitable and more sustainable in the long term? 
Interesting stuff. You, you brought to mind the working theory that I had from my last book, Pandemic Capitalism, that when we had the one serious run at lockdowns, especially up in the Northeast early in the pandemic, and it became very obvious that the people whose work was critical to keeping society afloat were not the ones who were well rewarded by, by the economy. And kind of my idea was that that wasn't a thing that the people who were pulling the levers were keen to allow to continue very long. And, and, and hence we had lockdowns kind of get watered down pretty quickly and then go away when I believe that that's exactly what we needed to, to move out of this quickly. That raises a great point that like we've had a discussion, we quote unquote broader, we like the, the media and political discussion has often been about quote, bringing people back to work. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an interesting kind of, sort of blind spot that that has in which many people have, haven't left, right? That right. there hasn't been for people let's say, who work in supermarkets or people who work in hospitals, right? Or the people who clean, clean buildings, the people who kind of the bus drivers and kind of train conductors that are like, they didn't leave. They've mm -hmm. still had to go to work yep. throughout all of this. And they, they haven't even had the luxury of, of doing stuff remote that others have when we see that kind of disconnect in whose work is essential and whose work is at the front of politicians minds and the media's minds when even discussing the issue of work itself yeah I, I haven't been in an office for work in 15 months i think and i like to think i do things that are meaningful but you know no one's being fed mess out of my family from any work i do so it's a, it raises some interesting questions and it also reminds as well with kind of that quote back to work framing is that when we're seeing now is that strong push for reopening things as quickly as possible. And there are obviously like human imperatives are just wanting to be able to kind of see people and interact. It's been that kind of tension around lockdowns. It was clear early on that having a very intense but somewhat short lockdown and like a, just a very kind of full force public health approach is the best way of containing it. Mm -hmm. Where you know that it's going to be kind of perhaps more unpleasant to experience, but shorter. Because yeah. you, like kind of in what New Zealand gets off, even though they've had like some resurgences, they're like, no, we're clamping down and so that we have the free time later. Whereas mm -hmm. the US, there was constant tension about what exactly, like what exactly would even be cut off in the lockdown. And as soon as there's that bit of air to remove all controls, Mm -hmm. everybody who can wants to do that. And we've been, it was striking where even though the U S hasn't, and like many, at least many States in the U S aren't even close. Some are, some have done a better job than others, but in terms of vaccination rates that were not at herd immunity levels yet, there's already that strong push to have everybody back to the office, remove all capacity restrictions, et cetera. That's something that can work fine in, in certain places that have done a better job at the vaccine rollout. But there are still some places, like especially in the South, mm -hmm. that have done a terrible job. Yeah, it's a, in a lot of rural areas as well, I think the, the vaccination rates are, are significantly lower. And I mean, maybe people are, are spread out enough that they're, they're not at so much risk of, of spreading. But it seems like that's kind of some of the areas where it's continuing to be problematic. Yeah, that point about density is a really interesting thing to think about. The one thing that you've seen in recent years in politics is how much the density of a municipality correlates with its voting patterns. Mm -hmm. 
And so, and that at the same time during the pandemic, you also end up saying that like how dense of a place you live also changes your experience of living in a pandemic. Where if you're in a high density area, let's say like if you live in let's say Boston, if you live in Philadelphia, where I'm from originally, was just down for the first time since February of last year, or New York, like the idea, it, it's just hard to imagine being six feet away from somebody on the street. Like mm-hmm. you just can't do it. There isn't enough sidewalk. Yeah. So that you, your kind of everyday experience is being around people. And so that there's a public support for a stronger response because mm-hmm. your everyday experience is experiencing life in the conditions of being constantly surrounded by people moving to a destination just like you are. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a low density situation, like place, you don't experience that. And so there's a way in which that compounds with the political kind of the increasing way in which density and, and political affiliations align. So if you're somebody who already is of like an increasingly conservative political affiliation in a, in a low density area, you just don't see, you just won't feel it as a reality in the same way. For sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we're, we're in one of the big uh, major cities in, in Southeast Asia here in Bangkok which is very, very dense in the city, but we're kind of on the edge of the city. So when this kicked off, we would go outside in the street and play badminton with the kids and ride bikes and whatever. And, you know, we were careful about keeping distance from people outside of our family. But, you know, I'm sure a very, very difference from, you know, the people I talked to in the city who were living in condos were miserable. They were stuck inside of four walls 24 hours a day. And we actually, for for a time, it, it felt like it was this, surreal experience where we actually spent more time with our kids than we could when they were in school all day long. So very um, different experience from a lot of other people, I guess. Then, Yeah. And to input as well, with the kind of the contrasts between states, there will be a certain compounding of inequality, even with the, the vaccine, well, have the vaccine rollout, where a number of the Southern states that are very conservative in political leanings, and also part of the conservatism being massive voter disenfranchisement, mm-hmm. that they're also some of the most unequal and poorer states are going to be, that this is kind of an opportunity for them to fall further behind, as well as even the inequalities within states. Like here in Massachusetts, where I live, there was one physician, I believe, who was tweeting out last week about the discrepancies in Massachusetts, where in a place like Newton, an affluent suburb uh, just outside of Boston, where 99% of eligible people have been vaccinated. Wow. Compared to a place like Springfield, fairly diverse and kind of more working class city, mm-hmm. that it's about, I think, 60%. Wow. And like that 60%, it's higher than a number of, let's say, it'll still be higher than like in, in like a Louisiana or a Mississippi, but that's a striking contrast within the state. One thing that's been an interesting thing to think about as well, when it comes to the vaccine rollout, there's a way in which I often think about it as being kind of comparable to the census last year and interesting to see them kind of two efforts back to back where the the main job is to get to everybody Mm -hmm. and how the census highlighted about which people are just hard to reach that there are populations that are hard to count whether it's because of a language barrier whether it's because of issues of mistrust whether it's just because of issues around density and even getting to them or issues around broadband access. And that we're seeing those same inequalities again play out with the vaccine rollout. And I'll be curious to see like how states use any of the lessons learned 
with that massive outreach campaign they just had to do last year and how they respond to getting to harder to reach people this year. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting problem. You know, the, you've kind of gone through the period where there was a massive ramp up and, you know, you saw the counts going up every week for the number of people that were being vaccinated. The easy to reach people and people who had a strong desire and the availability to get to it, you've gotten through a lot of those. Now, how do we get as many people as possible, get to all those people that still want it or can be convinced that it's good for them when so many are going to be hard to get to, I guess. When it comes to actually getting hard to reach people, one thing that's been striking to see in recent polling, and I believe a Kaiser poll that came out recently pointed this out as others, is that there's a certain segmentation amongst people who haven't been vaccinated yet, right? There are some that often get talked about as being the like died in the world Trump supporters who, even though Trump got vaccinated, still think that it's all a hoax and they have no interest. And even if they've gotten vac- various other vaccines in their lives, they're just convinced that, they're, that they shouldn't do this. But there's a certain percentage of the population that just don't have that easy of a time of taking off work mm-hmm. or think it's going to cost money. There was an article in the New York Times the other day about people who are afraid that getting a vaccine will cost money because everything else in the U.S. healthcare system costs you a lot of money. Yep. And it was this rather striking illustration of one of the many dangerous consequences of private for profit driven healthcare system that even when things are free, people don't believe it. And so how that how that damages public health because there's there was so, such a loss of trust in the system. Yep. But as well as the need for greater paid time off as something that so many people in this country don't even have. Yeah. And, and even the fact that they should have been given more of it during a pandemic. But how that weakness of that system of basic worker benefits ends up exacerbating the problem. Yeah, I I saw that article that you were referring to. And one of the shocking things from that was someone was being interviewed about it. And the interviewer explained it's free. And the person responded, so I just pay my copay? So they couldn't believe that it was possible that it would actually be free. They thought at least I'd have to pay my copay because you don't get anything without a copay. I've been in Thailand the last six years. I had public health care. I was teaching full-time at a university here. And for the four years that I was on that program, I think I spent less than $100 for all-in medical care in the four years for prescriptions and doctor's visits and whatever, because almost everything that I needed, I'd just go, wait my turn, see a doctor. They'd send me to a specialist if I needed. I'd get x-rays, I'd get medicine, whatever. And almost everything was free. And it's just such a shocking contrast from what I was used to in the U.S., where the last few years that I lived there, I was rationing care for myself. You know, going to to the doctor only when I absolutely felt like I had to. When I go to a pharmacy and I'd be like, okay, what's palliative? Get rid of it because it's just so damn expensive. Yeah. No, that's a good segue because you were going to mention another article that, was just, that just came out the other day. Yep. About, uh, the, uh, about the relief funds. Yeah, exactly. The NY, another article in NYT that just came out about the effects of the stimulus payments in the last six months or so. What do you, what do you think about that one? Unsurprisingly, the, it showed that have, being able to basically give people additional money had a significant impact in reducing food insecurity or even just kind of helping people 
to pay, kind of to be kind of less behind on bills. And it, it was kind of just startling. It's like Democrats are finally realizing that the solution to poverty is giving people money. <laughs> uh, as for thing, just like it, maybe people will eventually realize that the solution to homelessness is giving people homes. Like it's no. not that like giving people money isn't the solution to unemployment in the sense that we view, view unemployment if you people not everybody has the ability to work or want, wants to work, et cetera. But in terms of poverty itself, especially for people with children, you give them money. Suddenly, they're not having to cut meals out during the day because yeah. of not being able to afford food because it's expensive to buy food for multiple people. So it can be expensive to buy food for one. behind on their bills or on their rent. And it was striking because of the way in which giving a check of like $1,400 to follow up one from 600 or the checks from last year it's not a large sum of money, all considered, but it's a very meaningful. It's still very meaningful if that if that is the difference between you being able to pay bills. Yeah. If you have like let's say two thousand extra dollars, that can easily pay for let's say like maybe that covers your electric bills for the year, your cable bills for the year, or maybe it covers however many months of food for you, and that gives a greater degree of flexibility for people. That if you're somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck, having the, any real additional amount of other money makes it so that you have, just have that leeway and flex in which people who are better off don't need to think as intently about the trade-offs involved with every every single expenditure. Think about that if that you are in the situation of living paycheck to paycheck, and it's often striking to look at income statistics in the U.S. to see about like just how many people in the U.S. are lack that type of a, of a buffer in terms of savings, every expenditure that you make is another expenditure you can't make. Yep. Right. So that it's like, if you buy the slightly more expensive food item, it means maybe that you have kind of less total food or that you can't afford to pay the cable bill or a phone bill that month, rather than if you're kind of, you're more economically comfortable you might sometimes groan about the cost of additional things, but it's not a it's not a direct X or Y that you can afford. You can afford both. Yeah. And how much that extra money really did give people that sense of security and how much it shows we should be doing that more often. And I think we'll end up seeing that come up again where the, the child tax credit in the kind of recent relief package, which wasn't made permanent. I know many Democrats want to make it permanent because it's, Children are expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Given that there's a, a clear societal interest in children growing up healthy and taken care of, we as a society should be helping parents and helping to make that possible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That MIT article, the opening paragraph is just, it's one of the most shocking things I've ever read in the uh, New York Times. It opens with, Jaleesa Webb resumed an old habit, serving her children three meals a day. Corinne Young paid the water bill and stopped bathing at her neighbor's apartment. Janetta Ray cried, thanked Jesus, and rushed to spend the money on a medical test to treat her cancer. I mean, $2,000 is the difference between these people feeding their children, being able to bathe, and get medical care for cancer. I mean, it's just, if we're the richest country in the world and people are living like this, it just, I, I find it so disturbing. Yeah, it, it speaks to a very large-scale systemic failure. And especially even with the last example around cancer treatment, like it's something that like, it shouldn't be, like with so many of the stuff that, that's been revealed by COVID around our healthcare system, 
of how appalling it is, how much income kind of correlates with people's ability to get basic health care and it being dependent on a job. It was like the thing that was striking last year is when unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's also the case where in the pandemic, you having health insurance is especially important. Yep. In case you end up needing to go to the doctor for anything, but many people lost that immediately if their employment, if their insurance was dependent on their employer, unless they were able to like navigate through Cobra here and figure that out. Which I mean, I've never heard it not seem like a mess <laughs> to have to deal with. And, and incredibly expensive. I think most people walk away from Cobra when they see the price. Yeah, exactly. That it's something that like it's. The U.S. has the problem of treating so many things as as consumer goods mm-hmm. that should just be kind of our, part of like a social infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, if you if you if you treated healthcare that way, if you treated, I I think you know broadband should be that way. I think we should wire up every home, yeah. and and because it's we're to the point where children need to have that access for their education for, you know, and, and it's just important for, for everyone to stay connected. Otherwise, I mean, and it, well, it's, it's got lots of problems that come with it, but I just truly believe that that has become a human right that should be, you know, it should be provided by the, by the government and it shouldn't be that hard and it shouldn't be that expensive for the government to do it. Our, our home cable plus four phone lines for, for, um, or sorry, TV, uh, broadband and four mobile lines here is less than we paid for one mobile line in the U.S. before we moved here. Obviously, it's a different economy, so there's going to be some differences in the pricing, but not to that level in, in my mind. In COVID, because broadband became more important because of things increasingly moving to the virtual world, and especially when it comes to schools doing that, you saw how the inequalities and access there play out both in terms of cities the racial and income disparities in cities, as well as with rural areas, where it's kind of in cities where people often can't have, might not be able to afford it, and in rural areas where there's just no cover, there's just no infrastructure for it. Yeah. Hmm. How about we move on to, we touched on this a little bit, what's going on with the pandemic, but maybe we could talk a little bit about the response and what, what do you think? I mean, I know neither one of us are direct experts on this, but I think we've, we've both done a lot of reading along these lines. And what, what would you like to see happen? to help us get out of this as quickly and painlessly as possible? So one thing when it comes to at least outside the pandemic, I do think there needs to be a greater ramp up of at least in the U.S. the vaccination app kind of roll out, specifically with the focus on the inequalities of it. As noted before, like if you're in an area that's fairly affluent, fairly highly educated, most people that you interact with are probably already vaccinated, but that's not most of the country. And so the need to actually really have a more aggressive push on that. And to what extent the federal government can help where there are states that just aren't going, that the state government is simply not going to do it. I don't know exactly the systems for going about that. It also speaks to the need for Democrats in, in Congress to be far more ambitious when it comes about what they do on health care, which hasn't really been a part of the national discussion It came up a little bit more last year, especially in the context of the election. But the Affordable Care Act was talked about as a starter home. Mm -hmm. The Affordable Care Act is over a decade decade (laughs) old. Typically, your starter homes don't last that long. (laughs) And so it's time to actually move beyond that. And the U.S. should have a kind of a single-payer system, which is, uh, has many obstacles against it in the U.S., but even just any types of push beyond that, or even something like 
not making Medicaid a state by state program is still mm-hmm. like it's something that's not revolutionary, but still would have a massive positive impact because the Medicaid expansion was one of the most successful parts of the Affordable Care Act, and it's reliant on whether or not state and because of the Supreme Court ruling relying on whether or not states want that and a number of uh, deep red states are just ideologically opposed to the idea of helping poor people. Yeah. And we shouldn't, we don't need to have that type of fragmented system that if you just simply make it like, no, the the federal government will be the one running this. It would have, it would have massive health gains in a number of like, especially in like, the poor areas and, and red states. And it would be a great thing to see come out of that as well as the need for, as we noted before that the U S in the discussions, there's been like that increasing discussion about what counts as infrastructure. We really do need to start considering aspects of like the social kind of social care economy as parts of in, uh, as key to the infrastructure of the country, especially as we have a growing elderly population in the country, as something that's very common across the Western world, and. We need to we need to invest for for care there as well as for children because of childcare being something that that got increased the, the lack of a childcare infrastructure being especially on the top of people's minds as well as coming out of this successfully from that there are many like small businesses that will have permanently closed due to COVID and so they need to need to be real attention to how are we making sure that we are helping things come back so that we want to come back. There are some things that may have closed that shouldn't have ever been open to begin with, but there are many that many restaurants that are closed permanently or even how to use empty storefronts that exist now, how to use that space and how to continue, especially given that we know that it's safer to be outdoors. How do we help actually in any creating more opportunities for people to be outdoors, especially when access to park space often is income stratified mm-hmm. and all of it costs money, which is why there should be more ta- like why that like we need to have a far more progressive tax system in this country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that it's time to get rid of the whole tiered thing and just have a steep curve. I mean, it's not like we don't have the technology to deal with something in that because otherwise, you know, the tiers just allow for gaming of the system and, that, exactly. It's something, and then like, and I'll acknowledge to a certain extent, which like things don't theoretically cost money. You shouldn't have to like pay for everything they do because money is a fiction and all of that. Given the way in which inequality itself is a public health issue, we do need, and, and that does need to be addressed on both the top end and the bottom end, because in order to address the inequalities that exist at the end of the spectrum, one of the biggest sources of resistance to that is the top of the spectrum. Right, that the, the wealthiest part of the spectrum and, and the need to actually to treat massive wealth as a public health issue in the way that poverty is also a public health concern. Yeah, you just reminded me, I, I read something Galbraith a week or so ago from back in like 91 that he wrote for the LA Times. He was writing about Reagan's economic program. And I've got, I've got the quote here. It says, a reduction in various welfare payments to the poor would lead to the greater effort and also greater production and income as the affluent needed the spur of more income. The poor, it was said, needed the spur of their poverty. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me of the striking thing whenever people talk, the way we talk about people who who aren't working in this country, Mm -hmm. that if you are somebody who is so rich on inherited wealth or on capital gain, kind of capital income, 
Mm -hmm. You don't need to work. Right. You aren't viewed as a problem case. Mm -hmm. Even though you clearly aren't working for that money. Other people have worked for that money. You're completely passive in that regard. But that's somehow not viewed as a problem. Even though making income via not working is like, inherent to capitalism mm-hmm. because the, the whole idea of having external people having investments in a firm and reaping money from it that whole system is on people who are not doing anything making money yeah but who has the luxury to be that is it is something that's very stratified yeah it kind of highlights the job stuff right now where there's all this unemployment and there are a lot of jobs that are sitting available but People don't want them because they're poorly paid. The conditions are terrible. It's unsafe to be working those jobs in a pandemic. So people are holding out as long as they can. And so we have both the federal and state level governments trying to strip away these benefits to force people back into work. It's just really interesting how on the front end of the pandemic, we had the highlighting of the people who were stuck in poor paid. And now they're trying to require people to go back into these jobs that were closed down for a while. Yeah. Especially whenever there, whenever there's a discussion of how there, there just aren't enough people applying for jobs. <laughs> it, it, it's striking about how there, how people who are willing to cite basic things in microeconomics mm-hmm. all the time don't realize, well, then that just means you need to pay them more. Yeah. Like, aren't we supposed like, because it's the same people who often use to some, some extent bad kind of uses of, of basic micro when there's actually a very clear when like you're in follow micro and say okay there aren't enough people applying you should raise the wages and that will attract more people heaven heavens no we can't do that not an option so it's, it's a striking thing when you realize like that's that is the main that will be the main barrier if you're having difficulty hiring people to go back into working restaurant working in restaurants pay them more. Those are often terribly paid jobs relying on tips. And like, especially if you think about like having to deal with deal with customers in restaurants, I can understand why somebody doesn't want to have to go back. Um, We're going to be especially reliant on tips from people who are probably especially annoying right now. (laughs) Yeah. I did years of waiting tables in college and bartending for, for several years after, and I had good days and bad days and there there, but there were plenty of times where you know, it was it was like two thirteen an hour was the pay. You're, you know, you're basically expecting to get most of your pay coming from tips, and I had plenty of paychecks that were for zero dollars and zero cents, and because of the taxes that would come out against the sales that you made, because they expected you to make a certain amount in tips, and sometimes you didn't come close to what was expected. Yeah. So you, know, you were almost working for free. Yeah, which is absurd, and just also speaks to the whole separate issue about like the idea of a tipped wage is just the perverse thing in the U.S. in the first place. It should be more like in Europe, where you're paid a decent wage for the work, and if people want to chip in a little because you did something spectacular, fantastic, but it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be a gamble whether or not you make money. Exactly, it shouldn't be the foundation to it. It shouldn't be just be like a, a nice statement of additional gratitude, not how you actually make your ends meet. How about we look at one other thing? Do you do you have anything that's positive, hopeful? I try to try to leave leave off on a on a high note. So what what's um, giving you some kind of hope in the, these crazy times? What's giving me hope? I'll say one thing I think actually has been hopeful to see past year. I I just think that the number the impressive youth organizing we've seen over the past year 
whether around mm-hmm. climate issues or around racial justice issues, has been especially has been especially positive to see, especially when you have that kind of Gen Z world that seems very politically active, at least seems more even, let's say, left-leaning than the millennial generation that I'm a part of. But I think that's a kind of important to see as something that I hope will be a kind of a long-term trend of people st- people staying in, staying involved and like not taking BS from politicians, electing better ones and, and pushing them even after. I like that one. That's very positive. I hope I hope to see the same. I think it's absolutely necessary at this point. So hopefully we'll continue to see that and hopefully um, we can get that sort of positive changes. Yeah. Our, well, I, I don't want to go down the, the path of where our politics are now. I don't, let's stay with the high note. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, no, there are many things on the depressing side of the ledger. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for, for making time for me. I, I appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure working with you on this book. And I think um, hopefully in the next couple of months, once this one's out and I, I get a pause, maybe I'll start thinking about the next one and we can we can do it again sometime for too long. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was interesting and that it helped you see something anew. As an independent press, we can use all the help we can get reaching new readers and listeners, so please do share this for us. Also, What Do We Do About the Pandemic will be available on July 4th, but if you're up for giving us a brief, honest review, you can pick up a free copy on BookSirens.com. Thanks again for listening. Eat supplied by Audio Binger.